Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're sitting down with Bob Blaisdell to discuss his new book, Chekhov Becomes Chekhov, The Emergence of a Literary Genius. Bob Blaisdell is a professor of English at the City University of New York's Kingsborough Community College and the author of Creating Anna Karenina. He's a reviewer for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Russian Life Magazine, and Tolstoy Studies Journal, as well as the editor of more than three dozen Dover literature and poetry collections, including a collection of Chekhov's love stories and the forthcoming conversations with Carl Uwe Knauskar from the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, Bob, thank you for so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great. Uh, so for uh, some of our listeners who aren't, I know we were going over your background, but for a bit more of your own perspective on it, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with you, do you want to tell us, do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background? Sure. Um, I grew up in San Francisco where I am right now. And I went to University of California, Santa Barbara for for my bachelor's, master's and PhD. My, my bachelor's was from the College of Creative Studies, which was a small college started by a literary critic named Marvin Mudrick, who told us the first, my freshman year, when I was in his narrative prose writing class, uh, that if we wanted to be writers, uh, we had to read this book called Anna Karenina. <laughs> so, uh, worshiping him, and I, that summer I read it first thing, that beginning of summer, and then I read it again at the end of the summer. Um, it was, so it was my book from the time I was 18. Wow. Uh, but I studied, we studied literature. And so we, we didn't bracket off English literature or American literature from Russian literature or the Greeks. We read everything. And um, I took Spanish and French and Greek and Latin hmm. as a <laughs> as an undergraduate and graduate student. My girlfriend took Russian sensibly, and I didn't. And I didn't uh, take up Russian until I was 45. Mm. And that was because I wanted to read Anna Karenina mm. uh, in the original, because each new translation was the translation. And if you've never <laughs> read Anna Karenina until you've read this one. Um, so I thought I should just, I'd read them all. Mm. And so I decided, being a language teacher, that I could, I could learn Russian. I, I didn't know it was so hard. <laughs> and, then, and then I was 45 years old. Uh, eventually, I went and took classes in Petersburg. Mm. And then I got a tutor at Columbia. And I, I, can, I, can, read, I can read okay. I, I talk like a little, a little kid. And that's how I have <laughs> to speak to people in Russia when I used to go there. I'm not going back until that man is gone. Mm. So, so anyway, I, I love Tolstoy and Chekhov and Pushkin and... Dostoevsky and Gogol. How many times do you think you've read Anna Karenina at this point? I've I'm read curious. It, uh, about 30 times. I'm, wow. I'm finishing it in Russian for my fourth time right now. Wow. Wow. It's, it, the, way the way people used to have a Bi the Bible as their book, Anna mm. Karenina has been my Bible. What other book do I need? <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it has been has been that, even mm. though it's changed over my over my life, it's still it's still my Bible. 
We were going to ask what, what we, in, in your intro, you do mention that you're learning, you're reading Chekhov in, in the Russian to practice for reading Anna Karenina. We're going to ask about that, but that's, I guess that, that makes sense. That's a strong answer. I'm sure through reading it throughout your life has been interesting for your evolving relationship to it over, over the years. I'm, I'm interested for Bob to explain a little bit about kind of what then has drawn you to Chekhov and your book that you're here to talk with us about, um, of course, not your book on Anna Karenina, even though I would love to sit down again and chat about that too. Uh, but your book, Chekhov Becomes Chekhov, I'm interested if you can kind of outline the concept for us and for those who are unfamiliar with the book. So I was, I was reading a lot of Chekhov while I was learning to read Russian because I could handle story. And something I kept noticing, I've been reading Chekhov in translation since I was about 20, 21. One thing I kept noticing in the Russian editions was uh, this great story was written in 1886. This great story was, that, was also written in 1886. This one is 1887. And I, it seemed, why, why are these collections and these nice Russian pocketbooks, why, why do they put so many stories from 1886 and 87? And it's because he wrote 110 stories in those two years. And about half of them are keepers. And he kept, he kept about half of them in his collected edition. Anyway, so that, that struck me. And, and I'm interested in writers who, who can produce art even at, at great speed. So my second favorite novelist in the world is Anthony Trollope who was Tolstoy's contemporary. And he was writing two or three novels the length of Anna Karenina a year for about 25 years. So he, how, did, how did he do that? And um, how did Chekhov do this in these, it turned out these two years, because after that, he just went back to a kind of normal, you know, productive writer's pace not an insane, crazy, incredible pace. And so I was, I was interested in, in that. And also there's, there's many good biographies of Chekhov, but the scope, I thought I could, I thought I could focus on those particular two years and see, see the explosion happen. Mm. Um, and it turns out he, he didn't have a lot of time to do much besides be a doctor and write a bunch of stories. And that, that was the discovery that mostly he was writing stories and he was, he intentionally did not write about his own life, but his own life is there because that's where else does, where else does a writer's um, imagination come from except his, his circumstances. Yeah. It's hard to disentangle. So I, I, I love Chekhov, and I, I liked learning about his relationship with Tolstoy, and I was pleased pleased by how how admiring Tolstoy was of of Chekhov's stories, not of the plays, but of the stories. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of Tolstoy, so obviously the title of this book is Chekhov Become Chekhov. Um, you know, in in conjunction with your previous book, Creating Anna Karenina, we're kind of seeing a through line of interest in the process of our artistic creation. Um, would you say that you have like an interest in how like a writers and like the emergence of how writers become writers or, or how they 
Is was that was that an intention of yours? Is this how kind of how you've fallen into over over the years? I don't I don't think it was an intention. It was just how should I put it? I'm not interested in I'm not interested in literary theory. Mm. I'm interested in practicalities of how writers just go about their work. Um, even writers I don't like are interesting about how they work, their habits, their their ways. So I, I didn't know what I would, I didn't know if we could catch in a bottle. I could not catch in a bottle how, how Anna Karenina suddenly became a, a real character. How Chekhov could, with no plan, he could just write the first sentence, the second sentence, and he was deep into a story. He was in a scene. And um, it, was as, it was as if he was creating a play in his own, out of his own fingers that he could see and hear and smell. And he had no time. He was about to be interrupted. Somebody was going to ring and meet a, uh, to see the doctor. And so he would just race ahead and see what happened. There's occasional stories in these two years where you can see him making fun of writers trying to think, trying to think of a story or and one of my favorite stories that I hadn't paid attention to called uh, in Russian Doma, um, Constance Garnett just calls it home. It's about a, a newly widowed father and his seven year old son. And he's, the father is a prosecutor and he comes home and the governess tells him, you got to school. Seriosha, he was smoking, smoking. And we see the prosecutor scold his son. But it was like, it's smoke, big deal. And he's trying to reason with the seven-year-old like a prosecutor. <laughs> and the seven-year-old is too, too wonderful, too charming, mm. and keeps just breaking up. You can take whatever you want, Daddy. I don't care. Whatever you want. Finally, after the message seems to have gotten through and it hasn't gotten through, Seriosha insists on the father telling him a story. And the father is not a storyteller. And he keeps stumbling through this story. And yet he sees the odd effects on his son. And he starts to exploit the effects on his son. And he realizes this is just like law, really. You can have the best legal argument in the world, but what's going to persuade a seven-year-old <laughs> and what's going to persuade the people is a story. And he's very satisfied at the end, but also troubled because the law should be logical and mm. reasoned. And yet it has no effect compared to this story, this ridiculous story he's concocted. And so, and Chekhov also writes, he, he writes a couple other stories about writers on deadline and being distracted by the family commotion, uh, the messenger from the publisher going, where's the story? And the writer hustling away or the writer not being able to compose because hmm. like one of Chekhov's brothers, he needs to be inspired. And Chekhov didn't believe in that. He didn't have to be inspired. He just had to write the damn thing. <laughs> that's that old line I, I think sometimes I return to this from, from Stephen King from time to time amateurs wait for inspiration professionals just get up and go to work and Stephen Stephen King he's a writer I'm 
completely uninterested, but his book about writing was very good. And one of the surprises for me, being a, a literary snob and an English professor, was <laughs> he, he's a reader, Steve. I mean, the, the, he's a reader, an intelligent reader. And uh, writing about his literary life, by far the most interesting thing I've ever read by, by him. That was, that was a good book. I, I, recommended it, I recommend it to my students. He's somebody they'll, they'll believe. <laughs> not, not, not me. Uh, well, I trust the professor, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a good book. I, I'm curious because you've mentioned in your book and then here a little bit about the other biographies of Chekhov. And of course, he's not an unknown writer uh, by any means. He's <laughs> you know very popular, uh, c- comparatively well-read to many other writers in Russian literature in the West. And this has produced, of course, a lot of scholarly work on him. And so I was curious how you personally feel that your book kind of contributes to this conversation about who is Anton Chekhov, or as you note, who is uh, Antosha Chekhante, and how does he become Chekhov? So I'm kind of curious how you see your book that is focusing just on these couple of years. How does this kind of fill a missing piece of the puzzle of our understanding of who Chekhov is? I'll say it just co- it collects... I read everything about these two years, and that's all. I, it's just that concentration that I would have loved to have for every two years of his life. And he's a he's a fascinating man, a wonderful man most of the time. <laughs> uh, pretty, I mean, that, that's as as much as anyone could expect. So, just for collecting the information, and I think presenting it chronologically rather than maybe thematically or by argument even that he wasn't mature he was plenty mature i've read well, i read all not all of the early stories the earlier stories the earlier 400 500 stories that he wrote from 20 to 25 he was already the writer but in this in these two years he got the opportunity to write whatever he wanted finally for the right wing newspaper uh, the publisher there gave him space, time, and money, and so he didn't have to write the, the humor pieces to to order. So, and the uh, the joke of the title, it is just a joke. He became Chekhov because, as you said, he was just writing as Antosha Chehonte mostly. That was his favorite pen name. He wanted to save his real name for his medical career and for his medical articles that he planned to write. But Suverin, the, the publisher of, of that right-wing newspaper, said, no, you got to use your name. And that's why in February of 1886, he became Anton Chekhov. And some of his colleagues who didn't, some of his medical colleagues didn't know he wrote. Hmm. And now they knew, now they knew that this this guy, this young, handsome, busy guy with an impossible family, was a writer. He was that writer that that the literary world already was paying attention to. He wasn't just, but he still didn't feel committed. He still thought he would go go back and just be a doctor. But he was outed as he was outed as Anton Chekhov. That's the, 
that's the joke. Seems to be. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to make a case that he, before he was not. He was nothing, and now he be, he mert. He he was outed. That's all. Yeah, it was sounded like a pretty quick overnight change. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. It's just the name. The name came out. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of writers and you being one as well i wanted to ask you a little bit about your own kind of personal style of writing just a lot of the biographies that i've read tend to be this sort of uh they tend to sort of pose themselves as being objective as having this sort of detached point of view that maybe inherently lends them this sort of right objective legitimacy but in your book, one of the things that I really liked is you don't shy away from integrating your own feelings into the discussion and switching in and out of first person in your analysis and as you're kind of linking things together. And so I'm kind of wondering, is this an exercise in perhaps becoming Bob Blaisdell <laughs> as well as Chekhov becoming Chekhov? That's that's a nice question. Um <laughs> No, I, I, I'm very grateful that I, I get to say what I think about Chekhov's stories. But wh- what, I, what I learned from, from my mentor, Marvin Mudrick, as a young man, was this is just, it's just you. <laughs> and there's something, he, he was a powerful, he had a very powerful voice, but very uh, conversational and funny and quite critical, but he wrote his, um, most of his reviews in, in his books very personally. He wasn't writing from an established position, it was just himself. And my, my favorite writers about literature, including Tolstoy, so I, Tolstoy's literary criticism is, is marvelous. D.H. Lawrence, Ezra Pound, when he wasn't being an anti-Semite and was just writing about literature, it was just one person writing. So those are my those were my models. Uh, I'm I'm not a mm-hmm. I'm not a towering literary figure. These are my two cents, my, my two kopecks. And uh, <laughs> so I've I've always written like this, really. But I'm glad to have been able to write books about my literary heroes. Hmm. And I didn't, I don't really know how Chekhov should be read. Um, Sometimes in the book, I'm arguing, if I'm arguing, I'm arguing with myself. Like, how could I have missed this before? How could I not have noticed this wonderful effect? How did I not know that he was writing stories really? The way a journalist does with an eye on the calendar, it seems it seems more impressive. Uh, it's like it's like learning about a painter that he was just doing commissions. He's just doing commissions and he's painting as fast as he can. And some of those are you think of somebody like Renoir. It's like sometimes you go, he's just cranking them out. He's just imitating himself. Chekhov didn't seem to me to imitate himself. He tried to get free. He tried to find a way to amuse himself and, and just step into a story and watch, watch it as he wrote it and see what happened. Hmm. 
Speaking of writing, we're gonna, I'm going to ask a question that um, I know Tolstoy himself said that he his own writings and Chekhov's should not be compared. Um, but how do you think that Chekhov's approach to writing everyday activities compares with Tolstoy's approach? Of course, having written books on both Chekhov and and, and, and both Tolstoy's work, I think you're well positioned to, to speak on that, especially I think in the opening of Chekhov Becomes Chekhov, you include... Um, some writings from Chekhov on, sorry, I wish I had written it down, but what's aristocratic writers take from like nature for free, uh, the less privileged must, you know, pay for it, their youth. Um, and obviously a lot of, you know, everyday life concerns both writers very much. Is, is that something, thoughts that have come to your mind or the way they, they both approach this in their own ways? Um, they certainly approach writing very differently. Chekhov, Chekhov, he saw Tolstoy, of course, as the, as the tower, as the, as the master, as the greatest. Tolstoy, you know, going, looking the other way, was amazed just by Chekhov's kind of looks like scattershot, looks like he's just throwing things up there, but they all stick. So it's, Tolstoy saw that he, he could not work that way. Chekhov did write, he wrote many Tolstoy, Tolstoyan stories. And I try to make clear in the book that I didn't see that as a criticism. It's just, and as Michael Denner, the great Tolstoy scholar, points out, everybody was influenced by Tolstoy. You, uh, some of Chekhov's Tolstoy-like stories are, are really good. And, and some of Tolstoy's Tolstoy stories aren't very good. <laughs> um, um, but uh, Tolstoy had time and and money so that he he didn't have to write the deadline and so part of the story of of writing Anna Karenina was just ignoring deadlines I'm I'm not going to write I'm, for the next issue and for the next four issues for the next six months never mind you're not <laughs> getting another installment and the publisher just had to put up with it uh, Chekhov was was a workman and dutiful and his family needed the money. Tolstoy could just pay the printing cost when he marked up the, the final galleys. This, this is going to cost you 300 rubles. Oh, oh, well, Tolstoy could afford it. Chekhov could discipline himself to sit down and, and write a story in two hours. I don't think even Tolstoy couldn't order himself around. He couldn't, he couldn't discipline the, the bear he was. And when he did work, he was like resentful that he'd had to work so hard. <laughs> the results are so astounding. They, they approached work very differently. Neither, neither, however, you know, sat back and admired their own work. Chekhov eliminated um, stories from his collected edition that he was doing towards the end of his life. Some of which I can't figure out why. And, and many readers have gone, why did he, throw? this is such a good story. And occasionally in this, in these two years, it seemed to me that it's a complete mystery, but it seemed to me there must've been something personal that when he was doing the collected edition, there was some connection to that, uh, that amateur doctor who was still alive and he didn't want to hurt her feelings. Mm. And so he, and put it in his collected works. 
So one of the things that Russian literature is often noted for is its relationship with censorship and censors. And this relationship is often very precarious. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Chekhov's relationship both with government censors. I know that you mentioned at one point in your book that he wrote the short story Shutachka, a little joke to potentially it could have been written as, as a way to get something sexually explicit past the censors. But you also noted that he had a really interesting relationship with his editors, which is, you know, in one form or another could be considered some sort of censorship, perhaps. And certain editors giving him more freedom while others being a little bit more, you know, micromanaging and controlling. So I was wondering if you could explain to our audience a little bit about Chekhov's relationship there. The, the humor magazine that he was writing for most regularly called Fragments or Shards, there was, there was where the editor had to worry most, this guy, Nikolai uh, Lakin. He had to worry about the censorship because he had to get that magazine past the censor every week. And, and Chekhov and his older brother, Alexander, both developed a sense of what's going to get past and also the challenge for all, really, for all humor writers is, can I get away with it? Knowing the, knowing the rules, knowing what's likely to get censored, how can I get it passed anyway? And um, I think that was one of those stories where Chekhov wanted to know if he could get away with it. And there was only one story in these two years that did get blocked by a censor by, outside of the magazine. But of course, again, knowing that there's a censor there is a kind of censorship. But writing for publication is also, <laughs> also you know that there's a kind of, <laughs> I don't think I can get away with this. And all writers enjoy seeing what they can get away with. Chekhov wasn't, he wasn't interested in political questions the way Dostoevsky was. And he didn't have arguments about politics that way. And he, some of his friends were bothered that he was writing for this right-wing newspaper. But uh, when I was thinking about it this morning, even sometimes people, sometimes people will join a conservative or right-wing um, group just because they feel like they have more room. And uh, he was allowed room. And he became... Uh, very good friends with Suvarin, uh, best friends with Suvarin, who was twice his age. And Suvarin did not censor him. He could write whatever he wanted. There was never any pushback on, on what he wrote. And that was the freedom that, that Chekhov needed. Uh, that, was the that was the political freedom he, he was allowed. From, from, not from the liberal press, but from the, the right wing so on a, on a slightly different topic, after spending a lot of time with Chekhov stories, do you have a favorite one at this point, or do they shift? Uh, they, I have so many favorites. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's like, and if I pick a serious one, then I don't get the, the funny part. Hmm. But the, some of the serious ones take the top of my head off. And um, I forget. I forget how. I forget how funny he is, and I also forget how how grim and ripping. 
and relentless. Tolstoy will take his foot off the pedal. He will relieve the story, and there'll be some hopefulness at the end, even of grim stories. And Chekhov will keep the foot all the way down, and he will not let up. And the story will end, and you go, that's, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Um, and that was, I mean, it's the, we all know this reading Chekhov, but I was still, it surprises me when I got to those. Um, mm. And I wanted, I wanted some relief at the end, and he won't give it. And it seemed to me a kind of artistic honesty. He didn't, if he didn't believe there was really hope in this situation, he didn't put it in where, where Tolstoy would have. So there's some grim stories, uh, particularly one that I like thinking about is uh, one called Enemies, which is when I try to remember it in my head, I soften it. And when I read it, and that's, that was part of the experience in write, about writing the book, reading it live to myself, I couldn't lie about it. I couldn't lie to myself about it. I couldn't make it something else than what it is. So enemies was something. Difficult people about a very difficult family was another, another grim one. Uh, and then there's the one about the poor guy who, the dependents, and he's at the end of the story, he has to have his dog and horse shot. And I have friends who cannot read that story. Yeah. But then there's this, um, if I had to pick a surprise story from these two years, I, I would say home because we get this, it's, it's comic. It's very touching. It's about uh, somebody who's not a good storyteller trying to tell a story. It's about a, a little kid and Chekhov is so wonderful about kids. Let's say home, home. for today. <laughs> for now, for now, this time. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. So this was, uh, you said a bit of a surprise to you, some of the, this not getting the sort of relief from the end of some of these stories. And I'm wondering if you had any other surprises as you went through your research, maybe about Chekhov personally. I'm assuming that you had probably a fairly high level of knowledge of Chekhov overall. But again, to write a book this detailed and this in depth on a short period of time, I'm sure you were really quite involved in reading right his letters, as you mentioned in the book, between his brothers and his editors and whoever else he was corresponding with. And so I was wondering if there was anything that really kind of made you step back and go, wow, I hadn't even thought of that or didn't expect that at all. Yeah, that's, that's good. The, the letters, I, I think I read his letters when I was first reading his, his collected works that they were, these were 200, 199 stories that Constance Garnett translated. And then when I was when I was in graduate school, all of a sudden they were all published in paperback, these thirteen volumes of Chekhov. And at the same time, there were three or four, five collections of his letters, and I read them all. And his letters, um, there's so much about the discipline of writing, and scoldings of his older brothers who were who were wonderfully undisciplined. Not wonderfully, but terribly undisciplined. And the letters, 
the letter seemed to me such a strength. But when I got to these, when I got to doing the research and reading the letters, they, they started to split for me that the letters were, to my surprise, so obvious. So that, that's what surprises me in life, are the obvious things. Um, the letters were one-to-one. They were to, to only that one very person. They weren't the great man talking to, to a, a world, as Tolstoy's letters sometimes are, and become kind of boring. Chekhov's letters were never boring, and they were always very particular to that one person. Uh, I had a grandfather who used to write kind of universal letters to all of his, to all of us, his 16 grandchildren. And um, I didn't like those because they weren't to me. But Chekhov wrote just one to one. And I thought, I, a lot of this book will just be quotes from his letters because he's such a good, such a great letter writer. Um, but the stories, the stories which he was creating as a kind of, they were for all of us. They were, they were open. It, I compare it to like getting to sit beside like the author while you're watching a play of his and he's making comments and jokes. It's like that, uh, mystery, what's that? A mystery science theater. 3000. Yes. With the two. Yes. So, but it's Chekhov, the guy who wrote the play, making the, the comments and the jokes and it's, and, and the sympathy. So it's like watching a play with him to read his stories. And I realized that that was more illuminating to me. I, I got information from the letters. I learned about relationships between him and the particular people from the letters, but they weren't, they weren't as interesting to quote. I quote from the letters a lot, but not as much as I expected to. I thought I could just lay out all the letters. So that was that was a surprise. What what I was I I wanted to ask you guys what what stories, what are your favorite stories, about any time from Chekhov. My favorite story I'll say from the book was not actually one of his stories, but it was about his life, which I didn't know about, and I maybe you would want to share a little bit more since you are more knowledgeable about it than me. But I really enjoyed this mm. fake marriage plot mm. that he maybe had going uh, with Dunya. And I was wondering, because I didn't really know about this, I didn't really know w- where it was going to end. And there was a lot of interesting correspondence there between a lot of different people. It was kind of one of the central uh, themes, I guess, right at this one point in his mm-hmm. life when everyone around him is getting married. And you say that, well, maybe there was a fake proposal that Chekhov ended up taking a little too seriously, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um so that's where I had to engage with a lot of the other biographers. Some of the biographers say it never happened, and it certainly did happen. Mm. But the evidence is part of it. Part of the evidence for it is that there is an evidence for it that those <laughs> letters have disappeared. Um, that Chekhov's sister Maria, who is his really his archivist, I had no idea this was her one of her good friends. I had no idea. And she knew she had to have known. And there were ugly, there were just ugly incidents 
incidences, and he, he doesn't behave very well in it. And that she was Jewish, he behaved very immaturely um, and not not well. But he maintained his friendship with her after afterward after they broke up. She married happily, and her husband was friends with Chekhov, and um, the son met Chekhov, and uh, he remembered getting good advice from this most famous, second most famous writer in Russia, mm. this little boy. So uh, that, that is a, it is a story and it's, uh, I wish there were more, I wish there were more details, but the details that are, that remain are the only part where Chekhov doesn't come off very well. Yeah, I, I like that, though. I thought it was interesting for somebody that you noted who had this almost miraculous ability to smooth things over with people that he, you know, would get into arguments with or would upset. He was able to be forgiven, I mean, almost immediately in a lot I, of cases. Yes, he was. He was forgiven partly, I think, because he was also quite forgiving him, himself. And mm-hmm. I think most of us do understand, as I see that story the kind of accidental are we are we a couple i think we're a couple somehow we become a couple and and just pretending like playing house and maybe this will work maybe this and and when you want to break up with somebody you nobody ever sounds very good i'm glad i'm glad it didn't didn't spoil him for you no and the contrast, it really made me think that one day in the near future, I'm going to see some streaming service offer this as like an original, almost Russian literature sitcom. I could, I yeah, could see I, it happening. I, I'd be happy to see somebody, um, some TV genius, turn, turn it into a, it should, it should be a comedy. I think Chekhov would appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And Cam, do you have a favorite story? Yeah, mine's a little more basic. I haven't I haven't read as much Chekhov. This has been a very illuminating read um, because so I'm more usually more recent works. But I will say we covered shortly after we covered Anna Karenina on the podcast. We read um, the Lady with the Dog, and that one has been interesting not only because it was a good discussion in the context of the podcast, but because it comes up in my own life. Often people one time I was at a uh, I think I was leaving work and one of my coworkers came up to me and was like, hey, what do you mean? What do you think about fruit in Russian literature? And I said, what do you mean? They said, yeah, it's always there in places of emotional importance. And I, I was like, I, I, you're going to have to elaborate in what context. They're like, they pulled up this Instagram post and started showing me, like, yeah, like in Anna Karenina and Lady of the Dog. And then that led to a larger conversation. So things like it's popped up in conversations in my own life. And so just being able to return back to that one as a point that, either in conversations with Matt for the podcast for other people for just you know someone telling bringing it up has been fun to re-engage with that one <laughs> um are, are you thinking of the watermelon mm-hmm. yes in the lady with the dog yeah I remember reading that story for the first time in rushing going numero nostalgia arbus. oh <laughs> and knowing exactly what it said and how plainly mm. it was presented I became obsessed with that story in Russian. So I read that story in Russian 20 times and listened to, listened to a marvelous Russian actor read it. And so the story is also in my head in this, in this man's voice. Yes. And the movie of that, 
it's all both a great movie. I, 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 I would I would like to write a book about that that story and its connection to, mm. to that movie. I, I know I could. I, I'm sure I could write 200 pages about the story and the movie. <laughs> if you ever do, let us know. Okay. Uh, it also has a, also as a side note, as a connection to my own life because I think I, I think about watermelons in relation to Russia a lot because I'm, I I can't eat watermelons. I'm very allergic oh. to them. I'll I'll like vomit. But when I got to Russia, I didn't I didn't mark down. I didn't tell the programmer with that. Oh, I can't eat watermelons because I didn't think that would come up. And I, I go into my my host mother takes me back to her apartment and she says, "Oh, I got you." And like, "Oh, here, here's an booze for you." And I was like, "Oh, how do I explain that I cannot eat this?" You know, <laughs> my Russian was was so so at the time. Uh, so it was um, watermelons in Russia is is a is, is a fun topic. So it did you eat it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of social pressure. I, I came close, to be honest. Yes. I think eventually I was able to convey that I couldn't eat it. <laughs> wow. That's good. But, um, Matt, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to touch on before I go to our final question. No, please. Okay. Yeah. So uh, whenever we talk to you know a writer of any sort of creative fiction, of um, more academic works, we always like to end on asking about what's what's next. What are, what what are you interested of of your upcoming works or any any things that's coming out soon that you want to talk about, or just in the mind, you know, like a book about you know the lady and the dog in relation to the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, that I let that slip. I didn't mean to say that that was what. I really would like to write about. That is really what I would love to write about. I just think no one would let me do it. <laughs> but nobody let me nobody let me do the book about anachronity either. I just mm. I just wrote it and um, sent it out again and again and again. Uh, and after getting no interest, I I rewrote it a couple of times. Mm. So I I I I like that. I think I think it's better to write what you want to write. And then hope that somebody will bite and and publish it. Yeah. It's also good, I think, to write. Somebody asks you to write something, just say, yes, mm. Mm. I'll do it. <laughs> I have no idea how to do it, but I will do it. Yeah. It's good exercise. <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. This has been a wonderful conversation. It was nice to talk to you guys. Thank you for for letting me talk on absolutely anytime and if uh, we'll, we'll have you back when you're when your next couple books come out <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks matt thanks cam and as we're wrapping up unfortunately we're not able to give a well, one to yeltsin uh, for a lot of reasons matt's on the sober grind right now the uh abstaining akhmatava if you will uh secondarily i'm also recording this in the future uh thirdarily it's not the right word but we'll go with it um that was also recorded uh very early in the morning before work for both matt and i so we were dead sober the whole time sorry to pull back the magic there but um let's go on to our next thing the big announcement which is that we will be starting next friday if you're listening to this uh, in the period between the release of this episode and the release of the first actual episode of our next series, which is going to be the 13th of this January in the year of our Lord 2023, War and Peace Part 1. And wow, are we so excited to get into that. We've already gotten a couple parts deep in recording, pull back some more magic for you. And it's been a blast so far. So I'm so excited for all of you to listen to what we've been getting up to so far. Anyway, this is going on too long. We just wanted to have a chance to chat with y'all, 
for a lot of you. It's been it's been a month. It's been a long time since we've been recording. And we wanted to thank you again for sticking around for two years and into right out of one of our big a series 961 pages, I want to say, for Stalingrad, and into 1,200, and I want to say 26 pages or thereabouts for War and Peace, and um, and to what goes beyond, beyond that. So, next time, we're going to be starting on Crime and Punishment Part 1. Uh, well, sorry, excuse me, Book 1 or Volume 1, Part 1. There's a lot of parts where it's going to be confusing this entire time, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, so, if you would like to read along with us, you are more than welcome to, as we mentioned at the maybe at the top of this episode. Um, definitely at the at the beginning of next episode, we are going to be doing a monthly reading club. So keep an eye on our Discord. Uh, if you're not in our Discord, go to our Instagram and find it in our link tree. Uh, keep an eye on our Discord for the dates for our monthly book club related to War and Peace. Uh, and don't forget to pick up a copy of the book. You can find links on our website to. Um, well, affiliate links, which will earn us a little bit of money uh, from qualifying purchases or find, you know, your own edition. There's a, a million versions of War and Peace out there in the world. And we also wanted to in- extend a, a sincere thank you to all of our patrons. And I wanted to especially highlight our uh, a new patrons we gained over the month of December and in the beginning of January. Normally, you are all at the beginning of the episode, and I'd like to apologize for putting you in the middle of this kind of rambling welcome back to year three of Tipsy Tolstoy, but it just didn't entirely fit with the interview. So I just want to extend a quick thank you to our newest patrons, James. James, I think we might have had you at our last one, but hey, you know, let's let's share a little bit more love. Ben, Khalil, Natalie, John, Amanda, Yulia, M. Dot, and there's a last name here. I won't give that one away unless you would like to let us know. Uh, Danielle and Banana Karenina. Uh, that one's got my vote for favorite uh, name of these. Thank you all for subscribing over the month of December and at the beginning of January when we were posting nothing. We really appreciate your support, and it goes a long way towards helping us make sure that these ed- episodes get edited, uh, get out to you, and that we can continue our schedule of three uploads a month. And also now, three uploads a month, plus, as you'll see very soon, well, with this episode release, actually, uh, three episodes, both audio and and video, so check out our YouTube channel, uh, Tipsy Tolstoy, if you want to take a look at that. So, thank you to all of our newest patrons, and also thank you to our long-term and loyal patrons, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, and <laughs> sorry, I forgot one of our patrons that changed her name, uh, Madeline uh, and Jeff. Thank you all so much for supporting our podcast. We truly could not do this without all of you because um, podcasting isn't free and grad school uh, does not pay very well. If you're interested in joining our current patrons to keep the show running at its current pace, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website 
tipsytolstoy.com. And you'll hear from us again soon.